In the first year of Temporary Fandom's existence, and I'm talking about the Facebook group here, not the podcast, we covered many of my favourite bands and artists. Starting with The Fall, obviously, we ventured further and further from a musical touchstone, so that by now, some six years later, we've covered close to 200 bands, many of whom I'm still not entirely sure I even like. But that's kind of the point, exploring discographies and trying to reach an understanding of the things you love. You can join that experience at facebook.com slash groups slash tempfans, or simply by searching Temporary Fandoms, where, at the time of recording this, we're working our way through the vast discography of the OCs, having recently listened to artists as diverse as Dexy's Midnight Runners, Buddy Holly, and God Machine. This here podcast, which lives at infrequency.co.uk as part of a suite of monthly podcasts, is an attempt to capture the best elements of that group. The open-mindedness for sure, but also that desire to share music with other people and dig for truffles on albums that are too easily ignored. Anyway, I mention all of this because we listened to today's artists way back at the beginning, not long after The Fall and David Bowie, both of whom we've committed to earlier podcasts as well. She's one of my very favourite artists, and as you'll hear over the next two episodes, one that I believe has never put out a bad record. We're talking about none other than Dorset singer-songwriter PJ Harvey. Hello there, welcome to Temporary Fandoms, um, part of the Infrequency collection, anthology, whatever, of podcasts, which you can find on, on infrequency.co.uk. I'm Ewan. I'm Nick. We haven't done this for a while, so I wasn't sure whether he was going to remember how, uh, that, so we needed to do that. Um, and as you know, if you've been listening to us regularly, Temporary Fandoms is where we take you through the discography, or at least the studio discography of an artist from start to finish. Hopefully you could become at least a temporary fan. Um, and well, basically that's it. Usually we have a couple of guests on. Um, today we only have one guest. Um who has been on Temporary Fandoms multiple times, as well as our sister podcast, Movement Scenes and Genres. Um, I, I, I've introduced you so many times now, I'm just going to keep it brief. I'm journalist, musician, author, it's Sharia Moore. Hey, Sharia. Hello. Hi. Yeah, carrying a lot of weight as the solo guest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's no pressure. Okay, good. <laughs> Set that out early. <laughs> Well, the, well, the reason, one of the reasons why, I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, there, there were inquiries to try and see if we could find the right guest to come in. It yes. wasn't quite working. Then we had a bit of a chat, Nick and I, and we went, well, because yourself and Nick are sharing or co-curating or however we want to talk about, describe it, today's artist, it kind of works rather yeah. than having two guests on plus me and then Nick occasionally saying, hello, I'm still here. Uh, it's, it, it's something that both Nick and you feel passionate about. But we have not even mentioned who that are. Cherie, who are we doing? Oh, we are looking at the mighty discography of Polly Jean Harvey. Yay. Oh, <laughs> uh, and I, I think you're both the experts here. So now I can go, Nick, what are we doing from which album to which album in the first mm. part? Because it's going to be a two-parter. Uh, so the first uh, part we're going to be listening from 1992's Dry through to 1998's Is This Desire. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, if you are listening on your podcast player, there'll be a link to a Spotify playlist. You can go and have a listen if you want. If you, have, if you want to support the show for about 
depending on your currency or the taxes in your current your country, something about somewhere around two ninety nine a month. Um, there's a version of our Mixcloud, mixcloud.com slash tempfans. That would include a selection of the tracks we are talking about in embedded in the show. Um, well, we're going to carry on. Um, after the next sort of musical sting, you're going to hear... Ooh, who's doing the first album? I'm up. Cherie. Yeah. You're going to hear Cherie. Um, you'll be talking through a couple of albums, and then we'll all be back, well, in a bit. Recorded at the Ice House in Yeovil, Polly Jean Harvey's iconic debut, Dry, was originally released on Two Pure Records with band drummer Rob Ellis, well known now, of course, for his work producing and arranging with Marianne Faithful, Anna Calvi, Bat for Lashes, that hugely underrated Charlotte Hathaway solo album, and bassist Stephen Vaughan. The record, Harvey admitted to The Observer's Amy Raphael in 2009, was about the disintegration of a relationship and the overwhelming intensity of London after she'd grown up in rural Dorset. She was 22 years old at the time of release. Dry quickly established a long-standing pattern of Polly Jean Harvey's songwriting approach, not always confessional, but rather comments on stories or characters grounded in history, religion or the arts. Take exhibitionist-inducing single Sheila and the Gig, which I've only recently learned was actually a tribute to Celtic carvings of women with exaggerated vulvas. Thank you, Mum. Praised by John Peel, and rightly so, the record only became a real talking point when PJ Harvey braved her, then quite radical, unshaven armpits on the cover of an NME issue. One reviewer claimed she had reinvented post-rockist guitar. Or was it that women were finally allowed in? The term post-rockist was coined by English rock musician Pete Wiley. In 2002, Keller Fasana would define rockist as someone who reduces rock and roll to a caricature, rockism meaning idolising the authentic old legend. Ironic, really, given that during her early years in Sleepy Dorset, Harvey's parents would often wake her and her brother by playing Beefheart and Bob Dylan at 3am. In fact, she saw the latter perform, and the Stones, all before she was 10 years old. In her sheltered homestead, Polly Jean Harvey was the only girl in her village. A tomboy, she kept her hair cropped and was happy to be mistaken for a boy, until, at 14, she became interested in the opposite sex and also began flirting with the idea of music making. She played the saxophone and guitar in bands, but never entertained music as a vocation. Released a decade later... Dry and PJ Harvey as a solo artist in her own right both stand out as something of an anomaly. In the early 90s, Big Dick Energy was rocking the masses with Sabbath, Alice in Chains and U2 all charting with recent releases. Meanwhile, the big pop icons were women, but in the form of certified diva Mariah Carey and Madonna striking a pose. PJ Harvey then existed as an outlier, not grunge, not riot girl, relentlessly creative and certainly not bound to a template as we hear on this blissful entry to her staggering body of work. Following the release of her debut, non-stop touring had begun to take its toll on Harvey's health and she was suffering from exhaustion, poor eating habits and a heart-wrenching breakup as documented in a lot of Dry's autobiographical content. After signing to record label Too Pure, she and the band had relocated to London the year previously, where she had also been accepted to study at Central St Martin's College of Art and Design. But when Harvey fell ill in the summer of 1992, 
the college refused to hold her place any longer. She left her London apartment and retreated to native Dorset. This is the setting we find her in as she begins to pen what would become her sophomore release, Rid of Me. The title track oozes with the hate and frustration of that aforementioned breakup, a song that Harvey herself admits she wrote at her illest and at an almost psychotic time. But actually, it's such a refreshing platform for women's rage nearly 30 years on. Indeed, Melody Maker praised it for aggressively exploring the dark side of human nature. No other British artist possesses the nerve, let alone the talent, to conjure up its soundtrack. This would also be the last record she performed with the previous trio format alongside Ellis and Vaughan, but my do they make their mark. Recorded with Steve Albini of Big Black and Shellac fame, and is now notorious for his work with mega groups like Pixies and The Breeders, Harvey had admired these raw recordings, and that's certainly evident in the production of this record, which is so abrasive and intimate. Unrubbed till it bleeds, you literally catch someone coughing in the background of the take. Huge clattering warehouse drums, that ride sound on Mist, run riot on this record, a component that Harvey was keen to capture during the two-week recording with the band performing the tracks live in the studio together. She explained, Steve is the only person I know that can record a drum kit and it sounds like you're standing in front of a drum kit. All I ever wanted is for us to be recorded and to sound like we do when we're playing together in a room. But there are also roots in her childhood here too, in her mother's obsession with mythology as she pens a pagan love spell to the moon goddess Luna in Yuri G, and Highway 61, the only track not written by Harvey but by her parents' record player mainstay, Bob Dylan, a rollicking blues riff that quickly canters to pick up pace. Shedding Ellis and Vaughan on the back of this release, Polly Jean Harvey began constructing the first iteration of PJ Harvey, the solo artist, from the ashes of PJ Harvey, the band, as witnessed in her Rye performance in a gold cocktail dress on The Tonight Show. And just two records in, just two records in, this would also be PJ Harvey's first flirtation with the Mercury Prize, receiving a nomination but losing out to Suede. That nomination, as we know now, though, would by no means be her last. I bought Dry on the day of release, having been awed by PJ Harvey on the diminutive stage of the Holodelphy, the limited edition with the extra disc of demos. I was at university when Rid of Me came out and found it brilliant and raw. But a strange thing happened with To Bring You My Love in 1995 that was almost a stumbling block in my nascent fandom. My dad bought himself the album, before I did. PJ Harvey had made the journey from Darling of the Music Press to the review columns of The Guardian, and this artist, who I thought was mine, was now equally at home among my dad's Fleetwood Mac and Dire Straits records. How could this be? At 22, I wasn't ready for such a nuanced understanding of what happens when an artist achieves broader appeal. Fortunately, neither was my dad, who didn't really take to the record, finding it too dark for his tastes. Order was temporarily restored. But as a consequence of this unexpected hiccup, I didn't buy a copy of PJ Harvey's third album until years later, although I did grudgingly listen to my dad's copy. This was in effect PJ Harvey's debut solo record after the trio of Dry and Rid of Me disintegrated during a gruelling US tour. Produced by John Parrish and Flood, who will both be frequent collaborators over Harvey's career, on first listen it's a mellower affair than its predecessor, but that slow, bluesy sound is a vehicle for equally difficult themes of loss, drowning and infanticide. Harvey is pictured on the cover like Hamlet's Ophelia, floating fully clothed in a way that recalls the watery themes of her first two albums. The album opens with the line, I was born in the desert, 
the exact same opening line as on Beefheart's Safe as Milk, setting the tone for the album with its big black monsoons of Meat the Monster. That's also a Beefheart reference, by the way. And the sludgy prowl of Working for the Man. Much has been made of the album's lead single, Down by the Water, and Harvey's dismay over journalists who imagined its themes of filicide to be somehow autobiographical. In 1995, I still wanted Polly to be coarse and thundering, but To Bring You My Love revealed another side for which I wouldn't be ready for another few years. Listening now, however, it's a staggeringly good album, and when Harvey released a duet with Nick Cave a year later, Henry Lee, it made perfect sense. Hello there, welcome back to Temporary Fandoms, looking at the work of PJ Harvey um, with myself, Nick and Cherie. Um, the first album is dry. Um, I'll start with you, Cherie, because you did the, the album introduction. Yeah. How, I mean, was this PJ Harvey's, was this Polly's, I'm just going to say Polly, I'm just going to say Polly. Do it. Was this her first, her first musical anything i mean did she come into this fully formed did, mm. has she been gigging for years that's a good question and uh, throughout this i'm obviously going to lean on nick as well because i know he's a massive fan um so jump in if you know differently but when i was doing a bit of kind of groundwork research i think she's been playing music i'm not sure if she's never necessarily put something out as you know an artist so growing up she played saxophone she played guitar I think I said in my intro there's a lovely quote from her um with the Guardian saying how she never thought that like singing would be a vocation for her which is just so hilarious thinking about her like decade spanning career now um and you get that from all the interviews with her she's just she's very you know quite reserved quite subdued it's a very um binary there's two sides of her I think the off stage and the on stage it's very much a persona that she puts on but yeah I think this is her kind of first iteration of PJ Harvey um it's one of my favorites I'm, I can't believe I'm saying that at the start of this whole mega that's episode, it let's pack up and but... go home done <laughs> <laughs> but she was in a band she was in a band called automatic I don't know exactly how to pronounce this but it's an odd spelling Glamini okay automatic Glamini which John was Parrish with as well? with John yes, Parrish and right. also the two guys that she went on to form the right. original PJ Harvey trio with this stuff, so right. Rob Ellis yeah. and the other guy Stephen Vaughan um, yeah Yes, him. So basically, she poached them from Automatic Blumini, okay. but I assume there's no hard feelings because yeah. she worked with John Parrish for the rest of her career. Exactly. Okay. Um, I did spot, I mean, I don't know how true this is because it was, it was on Pitchfork, but apparently in 1990, she, hang on, I'm going to find it. In 1990, she responded to an advert uh, calling oh. for female backing vocals for Slint's Spiderland. No way. Uh, and never got a response. Oh, that's a good wow. fact. That is a what if moment right there. Sweet. Yeah. How yeah. different things could have been. Yeah. <laughs> I well, expect sport for once. Yeah. I did not know that. Wow, gosh. Yeah, it's um in the in the review of Dry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She made a da 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 da. She applied, didn't hear anything back. And then Nine months later, after, nine months after Spiderland came out, yeah. she um, you know, released, released Dry. Um, I don't know why this didn't... I was the right age. Yeah. I was listening to similar-ish music in 91. Uh-huh. Um, and I seemed... I, I became aware of it. I became yeah. aware of BJ Harvey when, when Dry came out. 
Um, but for some reason, apart from maybe, I don't know, Oh My Lover and uh, Sheen and a Gig. Yeah. I, I, I forgot about her. Uh-huh. Just, it never really caught my imagination at the time. It was really odd. I don't know why. Um, when you were on before, Sheree, when we did Slater Kinney. Yeah. And we had Sarah Marcus, Sarah Marcus, sorry, um, author of Girls at the Front, uh, to Destroy the Riot Girl Revolution. And when we were talking to her, we said, well, this didn't, there wasn't a massive Riot Girl movement in the UK. And she said, well, what about PJ Harvey? Mm. And our, our, our joy response at the time was, she's kind of just doing her own thing. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And it's always been that way. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, so my experience of, of uh, first encountering PJ Harvey is kind of, I guess, the opposite of Ewan's in that um, I f- first saw her uh, at the Hall of Delphi. Wow, which is uh, a club not much bigger than this living room. Fliss and I play with the, the bus. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's, it's basically <laughs> the downstairs of a two-up, two-down yeah. terrace house in Hull. Uh, it's just been gutted and turned into a club. Um, and basically just because there's been a bit of buzz, I guess, in the music prayers, I think, I think John Peel was playing her. Wow. I went on to see it, and, and that gig, it's probably the best gig I ever saw there. I went to several. It, I mean, it blew my tiny mind, That's to be so honest. Cool. Um, and... I went out and bought this on the day of release. Yes. Uh, the debut album. It's a limited edition, 3,096. Oh, Nick, you're showing off. <laughs> I don't know if it's worth anything. <laughs> I am. I am. I've got a horror story about my dry record, actually. So we'll come to that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the limited edition came with a, a double disc. The second disc was the demos, oh, which nice. is a thing she's done throughout her career, is yeah. releasing demo versions of all her albums. But it started right with the first release. So the limited edition had the demo versions of the songs, which are just as good as the rest of the album, I think. That's incredible. And the set... What was Dry a success? Ooh. I think so. Um, I mean, I guess in kind of alternative, alternative music scenes, but, you know, yeah. she, was, she was signed to a major label for a second record. So the first one came out on 2Pure. Exactly. Um, and, yeah, I, I think it was pretty successful in the kind I, of... I do rem- Okay, alternative music way. Sheen and the gig did become part of the Wolverhampton indie dance floor. Yeah. Yeah. Floor. And it was always a floor filler, right? Oh, yeah. 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 And at some point, someone were like, Pillows? Are we singing about pillows? I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was that Sheen, was Sheen and the gig the pillow song? Yeah, take yeah. your dirty pillows away from exactly. me. That was it. That was yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. It was, and that was back in there where you couldn't just Google the lyrics. I was like, mm. is that what? Okay. I think there's just something magical about the delivery as well, isn't it? Just expressions like that. And the fact that she says dancing for dress the whole time, which I love so much. Um, Yeah. I think that's an amazing, that was a single as well, right? Dress. I think it was the only other one. Yeah, I think so. Mm. Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've listened to the album so many times. I don't really know which ones are the singles anymore. It's kind of one of those albums that's in my DNA. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I absolutely love it. And I, I mean, and also for me at that time, it sounded like nothing else I'd I heard. Yeah, I think it was completely. one of those albums that, or, you know, that seemed like nothing. She was always doing her own mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. And she had a very um, striking image at that time. She dressed mm-hmm. all in black and her hair tied back. Yeah. It was very austere. Yeah. And um, without jumping in too much, so it was such a shock when she completely flipped that image for the second album. Yeah. Yeah, although I did think there's some nice segues with this um, because one of my favourite tracks is Plants and Rags. Um, Mm -hmm. It's so dark, it's so gothic. I just, I love it. And I love all the strings. And I think that reminds me the kind of soaring scores of sort of man size, which will come up to in Rid of Me. I feel like there's that, it's starting to happen there. um, But then it gets even bigger on on Rid of Me as well. 
Um, one of the things I, I noticed when I was doing my standard, my research for these things is either I, I will do way too much for one album or not enough for another. Um, there was a story about how after she almost almost studied sculpture at St. Martin's College, um, they the PJ Harvey trio, I guess, did a gig. Everyone was walking out. The, 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 the owner of the venue offered them money to stop playing because it wow. was a disastrous gig. They, they took the money. They, they fucked off home. But then after she'd written, I think Dress was one of yeah. the ones, um, they were then offered two grand to go make an album. So there was this moment okay. wow. where everything could have gone totally, totally tits up. And, and, and you know, maybe we should have gone back to studying sculpture mm. and we might not have had 20 years. Yeah. 20 odd years 30. of 30. Is it 30? No, Nick, Nick, in my head, 1991 <laughs> was just the other year. <laughs> I still have hair. <laughs> um, okay, okay. No, no, I mean, I mean, it, it came out, it all came out as nowhere. If you listen to it now, you, there's no way you think it was the debut because mm. I, there's a phrase I see. Uh, she turned up, they turned up fully formed. Yeah. And um, I mean, what else? 90, 92, 92 was a weird year. And what, what else was? Yeah, well, that's the kind of thing I, I picked up on the intro is that it's interesting to place her, as you were saying, Ewan, about like, is she Riot Girl? Is she grunge? Like, no, she's not either of those nah. things. And certainly from, a, as I always get, from a like kind of gender perspective, all of the guys, it's super, it's like Sabbath and it's Alice in Chains and it's you too. And then all the big pop names are the women, but it's Mariah Carey and Madonna. It's not, they're just, there's no crossover there at all. Which, mm-hmm. Yeah. So as Nick says, she's just in a league of her own from the offset. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, weirdly, I mean, and it's probably a good time to say because it's before the next album. I did see her at okay. Reading 90... Oh, come Red, on, Reading you're killing me with these stories. <laughs> I'm like Reading 92. Well, 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 ha, Sheree, Sheree, this is what's going to blow your mind. Go on. Um, even though I don't, even though I Reading 92 was sort of middle of the afternoon mm-hmm. and I wasn't, you know, and I went, oh, that was, that's quite good. Yeah. I left the main stage because Public Image Limited were coming on. Okay. But more importantly, more importantly, as soon as I finished watching PJ Harvey, mm-hmm. I went into the tent and watched Lunatics. <gasps> you are, you're breaking wow. me. Oh, you've <laughs> got such good no taste, one, though. But, Gosh. But that, I mean, that festival, Reading 92, yeah. um, the highlight was actually Public Public Enemy on a Saturday night. Oh, that sounds right. amazing. But Lunatics yeah. were good. And I do remember PJ Harvey, middle of the afternoon, um, but everyone just remembers the Nirvana on the Sunday headlining yeah. thing. But no, no, I think it was a Friday. I think she what stage is she on as well at that point, Ewan? Like a well, it was the main stage. I mean, Reddy had, okay. had a, a stage in the main stage. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, I saw her at Blastonbury in 92 as well. Yeah. But she was on, she was on the enemy stage. Okay. In the middle of the afternoon. Yeah. Um, I've just pulled up the, the, the lineup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, okay, that works with my memory of PJ Harvey Luna Chicks. Um, the Friday day. Um, started with Red Cross, then Fatima Mansions, the Milltown Brothers, Mega City Four. Oh my God, this is '92. PJ Harvey, Public Fox. Image Limited, then the Charlatans and Headliners. Oh. People forget they were the biggest band in the country at the time. The Wonder Stuff. Oh wow! Oof. Yeah. Okay. '92. Uh, yeah. Right. '92. <laughs> so, <92, everyone. laughs> <laughs> uh, was there anything? I mean, I, I'm, I'm guessing that. 
in her private life or in their uh, private, there was nothing major going on of note as yet. I mean, because her next album, which we probably mm. could move on to right now, came mm. out what within a year? Yeah, yeah, about exactly. a year, maybe within a year. Yeah. yeah. I was watching um, this afternoon. I was watching an appearance on uh, Jay Leno, mm. and there's a, okay. there's there's, a, there's a, her performing "Rid of Me" um, in '93, and. On her own, you know, standing on her own. But then she goes and gets, then she goes and sits down with, with Jay Leno. Wow. You know? And there's this interview, and she's sitting okay. next to Kramer from Seinfeld, oh, no um, who was obviously massive at the time. <laughs> and she's just talking about how she lives on the farm with her mom yeah. and has to go back and do things with the sheep. Mm-hmm. And everybody seems really sort of knocked back by it. So, wait, what? Is it a working farm? Is yeah. it an actual farm? <laughs> but yeah, it's on YouTube. Um, PJ Harvey. Jay Leno. Um, so, 93, Rid of Me came out. Um, I was listening to this one about a week ago, I think. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't know, I think I could, could still have recognized the fact that it's got Steve Albini all over oh, it. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. Don't you think? The oh, drums. did you say that in a good way or a bad way? Oh, my goodness. Well, I feel like I've peaked too soon because I said I love dry so much, but it's probably level peg. I'm such an old school PJ fan, but I gosh, I just love this record so much, mainly for the drums. And I think that's all in Steve, just like proper warehouse drums. Um, so abrasive, so ferocious. Um, but she wasn't, she wasn't talking of personal life. Like she wasn't very well during this period either. I think, um, sorry, sunshine motorbikes. Um, yeah, I think her health was like really suffering. Um, she'd had a really notoriously bad breakup. And then as you said, Ewan, she had this place at Central St. Martin's College and she was keeping it open, but because she was really poorly in the summer, they kind of refused to hold that place any longer. So she left London and she went back to the farm and she's back in Dorset. And that's where she starts to write this sophomore release, um, rid of me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I I, I, I like the first album. I think rid, like, for me, "Rid of Me" was a big step up, uh-huh. um, yeah. and I, I I I listened to it a couple of times on the same day, and I still had other albums to sort of to get through. Yeah. Um, Pitchfork Watch, and I'm going to do this purely because um, Pitchfork have seemed to have had this thing throughout PJ Harvey's career where they reviewed early albums really badly. Then they hastily went back and gave and, and sort of right. binked up the marks. Mm. Um, there's one we'll come to later that they really do it dramatically. Obviously, they didn't release this when it came out, but they give it they gave it a ten retrospectively. Yeah, but there's a period around about six years ago where they seem to have been um, realizing that they'd uh, not liked PJ Harvey over the years and they sort of went back and sort of bumped up the marks a little bit. Um, yeah, it's an absolute banger. What were the singles, yeah. Nick? Yeah. Um, it was Just because you said Queenie. you don't know what the singles are. Oh, 50 <laughs> no, no, I'm just going to do it. 50 Foot Queenie and Man Size oh, the singles of this. like two stupendous tracks. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And again, like even after Dry, I was still kind of totally blindsided by by the stuff on rid of me and the, also the sort of seeming changing image as well. Yeah. Um, just, I mean, it might be more towards to bring you my love. I'm not sure. But she started wearing cat suits and makeup and it was yeah. she looked completely different. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, this is probably, this album's probably a good, a good time to sort of lyrically, mm. what themes was she exploring lyrically? Because the, the, the rid of me, as I said on Jay Leno, 
And she's, oh, sorry, my brain's gone. Um, and she's singing at the end, what, lick my legs. Uh, what? Yeah. yeah, lick my legs, they're on fire. Lick my I'm legs, on they're on fire. And right I'm at the fire, end, Jay Leno just goes, that was nice. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, it's um, it's a lot more pagan than I realised though. Like I think she loves, and it's a reoccurring theme, isn't it? That she's very into her characters and mm-hmm. a lot of people want it to be really autobiographical, but a lot of the time she, I, I almost feel like she siphons that through the voice of someone else even if it is potentially yeah. talking about her she has another woman's name there or um but yeah i hadn't realized all the um sort of pagan roots to the songs here the one i think it's yuri g is about the moon mm. goddess and um i totally i'm really embarrassed to say this there's going to be loads of like hardcore fans saying of course Sheree like that's ridiculous she didn't know this but Highway 61 I did not know was a Bob Dylan song oh, I just, right. I'm just okay. not a Dylan fan so that if, if she'd done a whole album of Neil Young covers I wouldn't have known because I'm just not engaged in that area yeah. Yeah. it's such a good song and, and I'm imagining it doesn't sound anything like the Bob Dylan track because it's it sits perfectly within the the score of songs yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, totally. it's less annoying than the Bob Dylan track. Okay, it's okay. Right. <laughs> now, now, Bob Dylan's one of those people. I I came back. I came to way later in yeah. life, and there's literally a four album run that I like. Yeah. Uh, but apart from that, the only thing Bob Dylan's ever been good for in my life is if you've got hiccups. <laughs> no, no, really. If you've got sorry, if you've got an earworm. Oh if, yeah. If you've got an earworm. Okay. Whatever Easy earworm confused. you have, <laughs> sing it in a Bob Dylan, over a stupid <laughs> Bob Dylan song so way, funny. and the earworm just vanishes. Okay. Can you give us an example? Give me an ear. What would be a catchy earworm track? Well, well, imagine uh, you. Like a, um, well, maybe she learned a gig. Yeah. She learned a gig. She learned mm. a gig. You just do that. Yeah. That's true. It just kills it. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good tip. Yeah, I like that. People. That's a takeaway from the episode. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, join Join us next week when we uh, look at ways to solve. <laughs> um, okay. So, how was this one? How was this one um, received? I think it was a huge hit. Definitely. Um, Because it was big in the US as well, as far as I know. I mean, I I certainly know a lot of American fans who who really love this one. That that seemed to be when when they all noticed her. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. And um, there was a grueling US tour that followed its release as well, which did for the band. Yeah. Um, And on the the subject of the band, I think at the time, I remember she was always quite insistent that they were at three piece mm. and PJ Harvey was just the name of the band. And I, I always thought, yeah, who are you kidding? It's obviously all about her. It's, but retrospectively knowing everything she's done since I now sort of listen to those two albums. It's very much yeah. about them as a three piece and the the, how tight they were, how they performed yeah. together. Yeah. Yeah. Also the, was it Rob Ellis doing the backing vocals? I, that, yeah. Kind of, I do miss that. I yeah. do think that's really that was special. Mad life. Yeah. Oh God, I'm so jealous. Yes. I, do, I just think it's quite unusual to, to position a guy there to say like, you're going to do this like really, really high falsetto yes. and it's going to be really creepy, but it works so mm. well with her voice and for me yeah like the bit um yeah exactly lick my legs like that last bit where it's just him singing is incredible Mm -hmm. such a good end to a song i also have to like the the fact that she does man size twice on this record is genius i don't know many other artists that would think like i'm gonna i'm gonna record one version of this song and then i'm gonna record another but it's going to be completely different to the first version of the song and get away with it Mm. It's it's yeah. just incredible, and all the strings. It's so haunting and eerie. I love it. I can only think of Radiohead and Morning Bell. Okay, which is on two back to back albums. Huh. But yeah, it's quite even then. It's hard to think. Um, while we were talking, I 
I just had a quick Google of, there was something I tried to remember. The aforementioned Jay Leno interview. Yes. Um, I know the one you I mean quote, in the gold dress, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, so he says, oh, so you're on a, a sheep farm, so you still go back and do the chores. And then like, she just goes, well, I have to do this, I have to do that. Oh, oh I also have to castrate sheep. For the male lambs that you don't want to become rams, you have to wring their testicles with a rubber band. And after about two weeks, they drop off. I do remember this, yeah. Because um, she keeps yeah. a smile the whole time she's doing the, the song, even though the song doesn't really fit that image at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, I mean, I'm obviously around about this time, the, the, the <laughs> perfectly balanced and not rubber necky British music press was, was shoving her on. Uh, wasn't there an NME cover where she was yes. topless but back? Was that, mm. that was this album, right? I think it's uh, probably yeah. Is it this one no? with the um, armpits hair? I think. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was around about this time. And everyone was like so shocked that a woman would have hair in her armpits, and that was like the biggest story from her as an yeah. artist at the time. I mean, I think early on that she she did do a few interviews and she got a bit burnt. She didn't like. Yeah. I think I think she liked having control of her image mm. and found yeah. it very difficult to deal with how journalists wrote about her. And the way that they just kind of run with their own versions of how they think the story should be. Yeah. And um, because of that, I think she was quite reluctant to give interviews later on. And the British music press at that time was, I mean, I'm not going to say that there's been Nadir's little peaks, and, uh, but it wasn't, I mean, it was, I mean, NME and Melody Maker were still coming out weekly. And yeah. I do miss the time exactly. where there were Likewise. multiple weekly music yeah. papers, but it was a bunch of drunk uh, music journalists. Um, one. And what would you give to have uh, that job? <laughs> well, I'm. I'm not going to name names because the, the the aforementioned person is quite famous now. Okay. There was a particular writer for the enemy uh, who who hailed from uh, where I come from. Who was who? The amount of times we go to little gigs and people are like, oh, so and so is backstage, but would write a review without actually seeing the show. Oh, no, mm-hmm. don't. That kills yeah. me. There was a couple of moments. Everyone, oh, <laughs> is here. Um, or <laughs> was here earlier on, but they've left. And then the gig starts, and then there was a review in like oh. NME or Mel- what, about a week or so later. I was just like, oh, no. fuck off. <laughs> yeah, that's not. But yeah, I would, have, I would have killed to be able to just do that, which is probably exactly. why we're doing this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> I, did, I did make a note as well that this was her first sort of flirtation with the Mercury Prize as well. She did get a nod. <gasps> she got nominated at, at huh? this point, okay. yeah. But Swade well, that must have been the first, that year. <laughs> maybe first or second. Yeah, Mercury Prize exactly. Well. Yeah. Oh, I always find it. It's like, hang on, we need to do this. When you go, when you have a look to see who else got nominated back in like the oh, early nineties, yeah. it's not as cool. No, it's not as cool as you imagine. Well, um, kind of. I mean, I suppose. Uh, you know, big Britpop purists would say that Suede were a seminal band in that movement. So maybe that's why mm-hmm. they won that award. But yeah, I was kind of shocked that they won that, to be honest. Because for, yeah. for now, I think that Mercury's a lot more, it positions itself as being quite progressive and quite, you're doing something different to what other people are doing. And yeah, that yeah. doesn't feel that The, the list of nominations is always very broad in terms of genre. But yeah. I remember well, early on, it tended to go to... right. Like indie albums. The more indie stuff. Well, okay. It, well, I mean, 1993 uh, Mercury, where Peter yeah. Harvey was nominated yeah. for. Okay. The, the, the other nominees are not so bad. Okay. So, I mean, I say that. There's New Order. There's oh, wow, yeah. Stereo MCs. Right. There's, this is your, there's the auteurs. There's also East 17 and Sting. <laughs> no way oh. did East 17 get nominated. 
But it wasn't wow. so. People now, should be the year before, more about that than the jacket potato. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> now, interesting. The year before, the one where Screamer Delica won the first one. Yeah. Um, yes, you've got Jesus and Mary Chain in okay. there. You've also got you two, oh, simply wow. red <gasps> and erasure. Oh god! Wow, Mercury Prize. <laughs> yeah, that's at least they didn't give it to any of them. What that's the bit where they define themselves. <laughs> simply red. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, okay. Well, it's probably as good a time as any. Um, we're gonna go. Well, who's who's introducing the third album? Me, not me. me. Mix up. Right, you're gonna. We're gonna hear a bloop bloop, and you'll hear Nick's voice. In a minute, and we'll all be back shortly. Sometime between the release of Down by the Water and Dance All at Laos Point, I moved to Poland, where I received a cassette of PJ Harvey's new album in the Post, a collaboration with John Parrish. I mention this because, like no other artist, I remember exactly where I was when I first heard every single PJ Harvey album. Indeed, I can chart my life and the places I've lived as an adult by her discography. It was around this time that I started to think of PJ Harvey as an artist I was growing up with. If I didn't feel ready for To Bring You My Love, this album was exactly what I wanted it to be. But who the hell is this John Parrish guy, who here gets top billing above a slightly rebranded Polly Jean Harvey, the only album to bear her full name? Well, he was one of the producers on Down by the Water, but he was also a founder member of Automatic Blamini, a band with which Harvey was briefly involved before setting out on her own. In fact, the other members of the PJ Harvey trio were both poached from Automatic Dlamini. His own career spans several soundtracks and a number of cerebral solo albums, but he's best known for his collaborations with PJ Harvey. One could easily overlook the John Parrish collaborations as a less significant side project. All the music on the album is, after all, written and performed by Parrish. However, the vocals and lyrics are entirely the work of PJ Harvey. Always the restless experimenter, it seems as though she wanted to free herself from the constraints of musical composition to focus on PJ Harvey, the singer and writer. It opens with the ethereal instrumental girl before lumbering into Rope Bridge Crossing, a strange bluesy number that dangles by a thread. On City of No Sun, Harvey sets your teeth on edge with a screech chorus in between gentler, softly intoned stretches of minimal guitar and moan vocals. It's an avant-garde sequence of songs that dismayed Island Records, who doubtless hoped to continue building on the success of her previous records. The oddly named Civil War Correspondent might be viewed as a very early indication of the work she'd be doing 15 years later, and the song Taught is exactly that, with Harvey in terrifying mode as he urgently whispers a story with the chorus of Jesus Save Me. It's not an easy listen, and I'm sure it would have gone down even less well with my dad than to bring you my love. The last three songs on the album are probably the most memorable, starting with the cover of Peggy Lee's Is That All There Is, that wonderful hymn to disillusionment, or a cacophonous title track, perhaps the most beef-heartian moment in all of Harvey's career. It ends on the slight but wonderful Lost Fun Zone, in which Harvey sings, I believe I'm here to stay. Island Records might have been unhappy, but this listener was utterly delighted. My sense that I was growing up with PJ Harvey was cemented by the arrival of 1998's Is This Desire. Having had my need to hear her being more abrasive and angular sated by the John Parrish collaboration, I was now ready to hear her make gentler soundscapes that were closer to my other listening by the late 90s. But much as I love this album, it's difficult not to mention that by her own admission, Harvey was in an incredibly low place at the time of writing it. Prior to the album, 
Harvey had been in a relationship with Nick Cave, and their breakup inspired arguably one of his greatest albums, The Boatman's Call. Knowing this, it's impossible to listen to Cave's West Country Girl or Black Hair without thinking of PJ Harvey. PJ Harvey's response, however, was much less forthright than Cave's. Is this desire plays like a suite of songs, each narrated by or about a different woman. Note all the women's names in the titles. Angeline, Elise, Catherine, Joy. The heavy guitars are mostly gone, but this album is very much about textures, leading to some gorgeous instrumentation arranged around songs that often seem like simple sketches. John Parrish has spoken about the difficulty recording the album, spread out over too long a period and multiple studios. But taken on the results alone, it's quite an exquisite work. Having heard songs like Electric Light and The Garden, I no longer felt the need for Harvey to always occupy the belligerent register of Rid of Me. Hello there, welcome back um, to Temporary Fandoms, working our way um, through the work of Polly Jean Harvey. Um, we're moving on to 95's To Bring You My Love. Um, Nick, before the break, you, you, you made a... You mentioned that she changed her image at one point and their cat suits were coming out. And, mm-hmm. and for me, it was this album that I remember there being a massive mm. image change. Um, down by yeah, the down by the water. Mm-hmm. Um, suddenly this this whole sort of went from what sounded essentially like early 90s alternative rock to somewhere else. Yeah. 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 Specifically the pink cat suit, the blue eyeshadow, it's that look, isn't mm-hmm. it? I think. Yes, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, which is amazing. Didn't she describe it as something like Joan Arbor trading on acid or something? I see this quote <laughs> oh, flying around. Yes. Well. Um, so Nick, um, this album, yeah. um, you did well, the I intro. Talk, so. Yeah, I talk about it a bit in my intro, but basically it was kind of strange when this album came out because having bought both the previous albums on release, my dad bought this before me. Um, I just remember one day, like, you know, I guess it hadn't been out long, but it it basically showed where she was at in her career at that point. Mm. For my dad to have bought the album, he must have read about her in The Guardian. Yeah. Whereas I would have been reading about her in The Enemy or listening to John Peel. That's fascinating. Um, And that was actually a little blip in my fandom in a way, Mm. because it was like, oh, I'm I'm not okay with this. This is weird. (laughs) um, You know, she's my artist, not yours. You can't have her. But he didn't like it. Because oh, really? uh, even though he he obviously read a review and thought that sounds interesting and went and got it, it was way too dark for the kind of yeah. stuff that he would listen to. He just you know wasn't on board with that at all, um, which you know meant that I could have a back. I, at the time, I didn't buy this album; I just listened to my dad's copy. But it, the sound was quite different. It was like because the first two albums had this kind of quite heavy rock yeah. sound, and then she did this much. Uh, slower, bluesier thing, but Ooh. the themes are every bit as dark. Yeah. I think as on the first two records, it's kind of deceptive that she sort of slowed things down and sounded a bit mellower. And that's just in the context of PJ Harvey because there's still some out there weird stuff like yeah. Meets a Monster, yeah. um, where she's kind of singing in character, um, <laughs> quite strange characters yeah. um, all the way through. Um, this, I mean, if you if you if you flick through all the all the little reviews and whatnot and all the comments over the time. This seems to be the first time I hear musically people like Nick Cave and Tom Waits referenced in the Mm -hmm. reviews and stuff like that. Um, And I mean, do you think, was there a conscious decision? I mean, obviously she changes her style sometimes within albums, but this was the first, this was the first 
almost tectonic sort of shift from one thing, one thing properly to another. Was there a Cavian, Waitsian influence that we know of? Or? There would have been a deliberate effort on her part to sound more like that. I mean, those influences were probably there. I can imagine they were artists that she would have been listening to, mm. but then she was listening to so much stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a couple of explicit default references on this album as well. Yeah. Uh, who's often say, mentioned as... Exactly. It feels more like it's going that way for this one. Like more more blues, as you said, Nick, like more kind of Howling Wolf, that kind of... I feel yeah. like the Nick yeah. Cave stuff and the Beefheart stuff and the wait see what is he building in the shed moment mm-hmm. is a bit later yeah. almost. Um, but there was a period, wasn't there, where people were just kind of, I guess in what we were saying earlier, that it wasn't grunge, it wasn't Riot Girl. A lot of people were just saying she's a female Nick Cave because they didn't really know mm-hmm. where to position her. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I can't think, and like we, we talked about this in previous episodes, I can't think of many female alternative artists mid-90s there are probably are loads, but I, I can't think of many. I mean, obviously, I think, you had the Britpop, you had yeah, the Elasticas. Yeah. yeah. I think Bjork comes up a lot, doesn't it? Um, yeah. And Liz, I mean, a bit more indie, but Liz Fair, I think, was released released an album around this time. Um, what is it yes. called? Guyville or something. Guy, exit uh, from Guyville, exit to Guyville, yes, something like exactly. that. Exactly. Um, yeah. But again, that's, it wasn't, I wouldn't say there's crossover influences there, but she's a kind of standalone archetypal you know woman on guitar which is awesome yeah yeah i, I, mean, I, obviously, what... I know that i know the phrase you know female fronted is not it's not a genre <laughs> but sometimes it's very you know for pure comparative mm. sakes i mean wow what year we're we talking about now we're 95, so we're 95 now. Yeah. But in terms of what i was listening to in the early 90s very i mean i'm ashamed to say there are very few female artists in my record collection i thought a bunch of like Aging Toyland records oh, and things yeah. like that. But 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 I think that was also partly why when PJ Harvey came along, it just seemed like it came out of nowhere. Yeah. Because you know, since PJ Harvey, there's been a lot of very strong sort of um, female singer-songwriters, but at that time there wasn't actually much to pick between. Oh, no. I, yeah. Particularly in the UK. Um yeah. I, I know there were there were Although, there were one I, or two. I was gonna say, because for right. me, it's interesting, Nick, that you were saying about it's a bit of a blip in your um fandom. Because I feel the same that obviously I went back to some of these records. Yeah. But definitely this one and then her kind of John Parrish, a few of those. I was needy I was in Elastica mode at this point. Like the right. debut album had just come out. I was in love with Justine Fishman. I just wanted to be her. Um, and I think, I feel like she was her and Louise Wenner are, are both like a mate, but completely different. I think yeah. PJ exists. I mean, she's this solo, this solo entity in the vein of Captain Beefheart, Nick Cave. And that's yeah. very different to being a kind of chugging Britpop band with a snarl, isn't it? Like, yes. Yeah. Totally. And, and there also, there weren't many, alter- I mean, I'm trying to think of, um, of just, regardless of gender mm. around the mid 90s it was bands yeah, exa- yeah. exactly yeah. exactly that yeah i can't think of a single i can't think of many solo Britpop artists yeah. for example which maybe yeah, also but- why at the beginning of her career she was un- uncomfortable with positioning herself as a solo that's artist even though band. she called the band pj Harvey, yeah, but she was still very insistent we're a band mm. um and it was this you know basically to bring you my love was was technically her first solo album yeah yeah. Um, and you can hear the, the change. Do you think, 
do you think that her success in the mid nineties led to record companies? I'm going to say the word taking a risk because in their eyes, they would have been taking a mm-hmm. risk on more female artists. I mean, a year later we had Fiona Apple wow, burst yeah. onto the scene mm. and that was about 96. Um, and then apart up to that point, you've had what Tori Amos, Kate Bush, yeah. PJ Harvey, yeah. and no record company was giving them lots of chances, but then mm. late nineties and, and on, you suddenly started to have, uh, I mean, obviously we, it goes through cycles. I mean, music yeah. this year is, um, Female, female solo, self-produced pop. That's that's twenty twenty two. It's fantastic year. You go back three years. It was it was men with guitars with beards. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, these things are cyclical. Yeah. I um, guess, oh, go Nick. Go on. Oh, I wasn't. I wasn't about oh, to say. Anything. I was going to say. I feel like there's a fork there where there is. Yes, there's the record labels' perception of that and the music industry and and what they deem as a risk. But then for me, the really powerful thing is like the representation of someone like BJ Harvey for the future generations. Like I just had um, an incredible band called Foyline on the so on my Soho radio show, and Joni is such a massive. PJ Harvey fan. And I just think, you know, growing up in Northern Ireland, that must have been such a pivotal moment for her to see someone like PJ playing guitar and think like, mm-hmm. I can do that. I can give that a go as me on my own with my guitar. So there may be, even if we don't see it necessarily in the late nineties, come early two thousands, yeah. then is there a bigger push of other women who've decided, you know, I'm going to, um, what, one for me that there's, there's one for me that I, it's horrible to just compare like for like, but um, there was a, a phenomenal fucking guitarist, Anna Calvi. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, yeah, exactly. and you go see Anna Calvi and you're there going, yeah. I mean, I hate to say that you, you watch, you listen to a lot of PJ Harvey, but my God, she inspired yeah. you to yeah. pick up a guitar, didn't yeah. she? Yeah. There's, there's the same presence. There's the same type of guitar sound. Yeah. Although Anna Calvi is a significantly better guitarist. It's, it's I, I once saw her play with a broken arm. Oh wow! And wow. was and was still good. <laughs> she had an arm in cast, so she couldn't do a lot of the really fancy stuff. But she it was still. That's uh, really that's good. I'm going to interchange that story because I always talk about Dave Grohl with his like leg up when he had his accident and he came back to do the rest of the show in Sweden. But now I'm just going to use Anna Calvi instead because that's much better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, it was in. Um, it was in Brighton. So it may that's have been so the Great cool. Escape Festival. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, went in and she had a. Um, arm in a plastic cast but it's a phenomenal phenomenal I guess we should like blanket this whole conversation with the fact that I feel as if Polly G isn't kind of that comfortable with being known as like a feminist or like putting herself out there as this kind of female lightning rod because actually she'd probably rather be positioned next to people like Dylan and like Nick Cave and um Mm. and we struggled with that when I played in the band you know, you'd get references to people would say, oh, you sound like Hole, even though we sounded nothing like Hole because it's just an easy stepping stone. Whereas actually I felt like we sounded more like the Hives. So I guess thinking about how you review in a non-gendered way, um, even yeah. though, as you said, Ewan, there's a, obviously there's a, a like raft of people who would have seen her and thought, I'm something different. I'm something different to what I'm seeing now and I can have a go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, it's like, as we were saying, I mean, she was doing her own thing mid-90s yeah. while Supergrass uh, were, were coming out and Britpop was in that yeah. sort of, that, that mid-period. Um, and, and sometimes it, you, you just can't, like, some, if I go and see uh, an indie band and, and it's a bunch of, <laughs> bunch of people dressed in Vesper t-shirts and whatnot, I'm going, okay, you've got, you've got the, your blurry uh, yeah. influences. But then one of my favourite 
artist, uh, there's uh, Shara Warden, who's um, my brightest diamond. Oh, yes, and yes. And, and again, there's the way that BJ Harvey plays with her voice. That's a very and good reference. starts to do this on this album, yes. goes up and down and higher down. Shara Warden does the same, except Shara Warden's about two foot six. She's but has this amazing... I interviewed her once. She's so magnetic. Yeah, I think she's incredible. That's a great reference, actually. Yeah, she's such a, like, um, under-the-radar under gem. Um, incidentally, um, if people want to find out about anything about My Brightest Diamond, um, if you ever listen to the Decemberists, the Hazard of Love mm. album, um, which is a sort of prog folk epic from start to finish, it's, it's, a, it's, the, it's a sort of tale of the rate progress. And ha- they have a character who is the Witch Queen. And it's Shara Warden being just destroying it. And you're there going, oh my God, this is amazing. This is amazing. Anyway, I'm, I'm digressing. I'm digressing by literally just talking about other women, which is <laughs> a terrible thing to do. No, we that's why I'm ourselves. here. That's why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's this woman with a guitar. Yeah. I'm going to talk about other women with guitar. Oh, I um, made a whole career a, out of that. Don't worry. <laughs> well, well, recently on our sister pod, uh, Movie Scenes Genres, we, we did Britpop with, uh, and... We caught ourselves halfway through doing two things. Number one, just keep talking about Blur, regardless of the song we're talking about. Nice. And then, and then number two, we realized when we were talking about Elastica, we had to stop ourselves. Went, oh my god, this is. We've talked about five songs. This is the first time we've talked about what the lead singer was wearing, and we could have talked about suede and the big open shirts or pulp and Jarvis cock. But no, it was oh, Justine had a leather jacket on, and we had to pull ourselves up halfway through. It was just like, anyway. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm getting too meta for my own liking <laughs> and we are going to move on and I like meta um, and we're going to move on to the next album uh, mm-hmm. which is Dance All at Laos Point yes Dance. with John Parrish and John Parrish was in the initial so John uh, Parrish was I, I, one of the founder members of Automatic Glamini again apologies if I'm saying that wrong I'd love to know how I'm supposed to say it or even what it means and uh, yeah, what's interesting about this record um, is that John Parrish wrote and performed all of the music mm. and PJ Harvey wrote uh, all the lyrics and sang the songs, apart from one cover. Obviously, she didn't write that. And the cover's amazing as well. I think it was probably the first time I'd heard that song. Uh, is that all there is? Yes. Um, I think it was probably the first PJ Harvey cover that I really, really loved. Um, I wasn't as big a fan of Highway 61, yeah. I have to admit. <laughs> but but that one is is staggering. Um, and the the album is, yeah, I guess it sounded kind of strange, partly because it wasn't her writing the music. Mm. Um, but that said, it doesn't sound unlike a PJ Harvey album. It's not like it's completely different. Um, but I think John Parrish is probably a very experimental songwriter and yeah. likes to do quite weird things, yeah. and uh, which it is a good fit for tense. PJ Harvey. It's yeah. incredibly it felt quite tense. tense for me. Yeah, yeah. Like, I just yeah. like this really It's not an easy of- listen. Nah, nah. It was just this thing. It, it felt like I was watching Babadook or That's a um, good reference. Um, yeah, uh, Requiem for a Dream for mm. the first time. And go, oh, oh, oh! I'm just getting tighter and tighter and tighter. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. It was well. The, the biggest never, song for I, that would be the one that's actually called Taught. Taught. Uh, yeah, where yeah. it's kind of a whispered narrative with the uh, is it the one the Jesus Save Me chorus. Which um, is so yeah. beefheart. It's yeah, because yeah. I I had read that previously for other records, and I was been I'm like, oh, I'm not sure about. And then as soon as I I hadn't listened to this before, so this is a new era for me. Wow. For, 
for Polly. And yeah, I just straight away, I was like, gosh, now I get why she likes B-Fart. I can see, I can totally hear mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Talk yeah, is great. Yeah. Well, it's the instrumental track. The title track is pure B-Fart. Like yes. Mask replica. Yes. Um, I'm just, I'm just going to jump in for a second. Um, for the last year and a half, Nick has unsuccessfully tried to get us to do a Captain <laughs> Beefheart temporary fan. It'll happen. Oh. <laughs> It'll happen. I just, that is like a soundtrack of my youth. My mum would just listen to Ice Cream for Crow. And that's all I remember. Oh, wow. I just remember thinking like, this is so weird, mum. Like, what are we even listening to? <laughs> three, three, <laughs> three. You're talking yourself into Nick's list. No. Well, no I was thinking, can we, can we have your mum? Yeah, I was going to say my mum would be far more qualified <laughs> to talk about it than I am. Yeah. It's me going, can we put Elastica back on? I'm not sure about this man. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but, but like PJ Harvey, he's yeah. another artist who, yeah. I mean, I, I love all his records. I mean, yeah. there's a couple of slight duffers in the middle but yeah. it's all good yeah so yeah i've seen the beef art the beef art types of reference but often i don't know i think it seems to be a lazy trope with a lot of journalists where they go oh someone's doing something crazy mm. uh art, mm. you know uh, or, or crazy and bluesy or crazy and whatever yeah. then there's a bit of beef art thrown in <laughs> i think there was like one review which i really loved i can't remember which site it was but they called it a bit more like um <laughs> a freak led zeppelin in your basement which i really liked <laughs> so it's almost like it's got some of that led zepp element to it but then it's kind of a bit freakier than that and it's down in the basement yeah that for me that that for me that description for me is there was a band called the Edgar Broughton Band. Okay. Um, who I'm a gay bikers and acid fan, and one of their influences was this sort of this um Zappa E Beefheart yes. infused UK um, 70s band, which was Edgar Broughton Band. And that for me, that sounds like Led Zeppelin down in the basement. There you go. That sounds weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. I mean, this was an album I didn't even know existed. Um, mm-hmm. because when, when you sent the list, when we were compiling the lists of stuff, I was like, is this John Parrish, dude? What, what are we doing? <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't, really I didn't know who he was at the time. I, you know, yeah. I only found this stuff out later on kind of, you know, I thought, well, I suppose I'm going to be talking about, I suppose about find out who John Parrish is. Yeah. All I know is, is this guy who occasionally does the collaboration album with PJ <laughs> Harvey. I mean, that's an all right gig to have, right? Yeah. It is. It yeah. is. Oh, have you won a Mercury? Cool. I'll be on your next album. <laughs> she hadn't at this point. Yeah, because he kind of he kind of comes in and out, doesn't he? As well, because I think he was on percussion in "To Bring You My Love," and then yeah, it, no, he's he's all over yeah, all the other albums exactly. as well. I mean, he's a frequent yeah. collaborator. Yeah. He's often the producer. That's it. Um, yeah, that's it. There's there's two producers that whose names keep coming up, and that was Blood. him and Flood. Yeah. Flood. Yeah. That mm-hmm. was it. All right. Well, let's let's move on um, to well the last one in this section which is Is This Desire, which was 1998. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So have, have we changed? Has she, has, has she morphed into something else? Which, which, which parley do we have? I think for the first time, I actually heard her being slightly influenced by the sounds around her and what else was happening in an industry, which is interesting. And again, I, I've kind of dipped... Um, so in my youth, this wasn't one that I know, knew very well. Um, I come back in on the next album, but, um, listening to this, I just straight away was in like very late nineties trip hop, massive attack. Yes. Production. Very trip hoppy. Isn't it? Yeah. And I, and I liked yeah. that. I thought it, she, it really suits her as well. Yeah. It's the first time I've ever felt I could pinpoint her to the music of the time, which yes, is interesting. Yes, I know what you mean. Yeah. Uh-huh. And nothing. 
I, I, if there's ever anything that you can pinpoint in a time, yeah. apart from Britpop, it's, it's trip hop. It's trip hop. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah, 90s done. Yeah, so like, like yeah. Joy, Joy particularly has those like really industrial metal drums, and there's like the mm-hmm. front. I really liked that because it reminded me of the amazing drums in Rid of Me as well. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And there's still that theme, as I said earlier, of lots of women's stories. So you've got the the reoccurring yeah. kind of figures of Joy and Catherine and Angeline, which is such a great song. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a bonus, um, a bonus anecdote that again, she wasn't super well during this recording that she'd mm-hmm. gone into therapy and moved into a basement flat of a house owned by John. Um, mm-hmm. and art director Maria Mochnach. I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm saying Yeah, I'm not sure how to pronounce that either. Yeah. But yeah, she, she's the one who did a lot of the photography That's for um, many of the me, early albums. Didn't she with the hair and yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think dry the, as well. I think that's okay. all her work. Oh, well, I think so. I might be wrong. And I think um, Polly said at that point that they basically saved her. Um, so it's really, yeah. yeah, it's really dark, and and um, mm. yeah, there's a lot going on here. But it's a, I've really enjoyed this. I thought it was. I would add this into my like rid of me kind of arsenal. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting it's, how you mentioned the Bjork thing earlier. Mm, yeah, and then and then we've got because Bjork's early sound, apart from being very Bjorky, but her, her solo early sound was very influenced by the fact that she was hanging out with yeah. uh, UK trip-hop artists and yeah. there is that trip-hop industrial sound and, yeah. and DJ Hump is doing a very similar thing. Yeah. Sorry, mm. Nick, you were leaning forward. No, no I was just going to say it's, it's difficult not to mention as well. I don't really like the soap opera stuff, but she's just coming out of the relationship with Nick Cave. Of course. And of course, his response to that was The Bowman's Call, yeah. which is a fantastic album. So it's hard not to sort of put that alongside this as, you know, yeah. this was PJ Harvey's response to that. And frankly, she doesn't seem to be in a very good place at that time. No. Um, but was I love this, this album. Was this, the, was, this a, was this a time where everybody who, bro- who broke up with somebody else famous released an album off the back of it? Because obviously Blur's, Blur, yeah. when Damon and Justine split up, yeah. you've got the, it wasn't a, it wasn't a Blur Blur album, it was the one afterwards. And that was the, oh yeah, that's the Justine, uh, yeah, Justine's, yeah, that's the, okay, yeah, moving on, moving on. I don't think um, any of these songs feel like they're explicitly about that in the way that, when you listen to the Bowman's Call, there's yes. clearly songs that are about PJ Harvey. Yeah. I mean, unambiguously so. Yeah, and it's interesting because I had a note for Dancehall that she did guest vocals on Murder Ballads at that point as well. Yes, so that's then, what I'm saying. Yeah. Right. yeah. So yeah. then you, yeah, you've got that kind of, they're very outwardly supporting one another and then they've got this mm-hmm. horrible divide where they're now writing songs about that breakup. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it could have been a really bad end, I guess, to yeah. a career. I mean, if there's there's this turmoil in her private life. Um, mm. It's a good, it's a good album. It's um, it's a strong album, but yeah. she hasn't made it big, big yet. I mean, no. she was she was a, a stalwart of the '90s, but she could have disappeared. Like I think Ireland were kind of expecting her to. I mean, I yes. think it was probably following to bring you my love with a kind of experimental collaboration record wasn't exactly what Ireland had in mind. Yeah. Um, you know, they were probably hoping to build on the momentum of that. And I think probably in terms of a career in the wider sense, I think a career probably lost some momentum at this point. Mm. But 
you know, I think she still was putting out great albums. And so prolific as well. If you think yeah. now, I can't think that people would be releasing at that scale on and such impressive bodies of sounds. Like you, you might get mm-hmm. someone who's releasing something year on year, but it's kind of what they just did on the last album, but has slightly tweaked. Whereas she's literally yeah. embodying completely different zones for each of these mm-hmm. records. And she's produced so much just in the nineties. I'd never yeah. even thought, as you guys said, that like that could have just been that, that could have been that era. Yeah. 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 True. And, and we mentioned before, I think it was when we were talking about Bjork, you know, um, some artists now, like Radiohead will come back every 10 years. Yeah, yeah. And you think, you know, yeah, every 10 years, but obviously they're a band big enough that they can just go and do what they want and 10 years later turn and go, we've got an album now. I mean, I can't remember when the last one was. It was probably about seven, eight years ago. Mm-hmm. Whereas churning out four or five albums in one decade just seems... Yeah. yeah. It doesn't seem to exist anymore. It's a lot, I mean, the, yeah. The, it is, isn't it? I mean, I would say that I mean, the late 90s uh, did have a sort of few, a couple of post-Britpop period, absolute classics. You know, you had Radiohead yeah. um, mm. with OK Computer. Mm. You had Ladies and Gentlemen with Floating Into Space by Spiritualized. We also had Nick Neutral Milk Hotel and the Aeroplane Over the Sea, which mm. I know you uh, couldn't stand. <laughs> um, but also BJ Harvey, she's her and, and, and Bjork, I guess, are, mm. are holding their own against a very male rock. Yeah sort of background I guess but like um, yeah um, okay so that's the end of part one mm-hmm. um, we're leaving PJ Harvey being experimental um, <laughs> at the end of the 90s um, and we will be back with part two um, which you'll find in the same place you found this one and we're going to record it in approximately four minutes time so see you a bit bye hey. Thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed it, thank you for sharing us with your friends or leaving a review. If somehow you were listening to the edit without music, I urge you to visit mixcloud.com slash tempfans and subscribing for as little as $3 a month. That way, you'll hear the show as intended, with music, and a portion of your subscription actually goes to the artists, so please do consider it. Thanks also to our guests this week, Sharia Moore, who you may have heard on previous episodes about Slater Kinney, McCluskey, The Future of the Left, and DSG, as well as an episode of our sister podcast, MSG10, talking to Ewan about the New York no-wave scene. Just head over to infrequency.co.uk to find all these episodes and more. Or you can also hear Cherie on her Soho radio show, The Other Woman, which, like ours, is available on Mixcloud. Thank you to my indefatigable co-host Ewan, who was putting up with all manner of ailments while recording this episode, but somehow pulled it off, and as always, to Jonathan Fisher for our perfect theme tune. We're halfway through PJ Harvey's discography now, so join us again next episode where we continue from one of our biggest albums, Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea. Until then, I'm Nick Hilditch, and it's hard to walk in the dress. It's not easy. I'm swinging over like a heavy-loaded fruit tree.